Hey, I'm curious. What's your favorite Bible verse to take out of context? Yeah, no, yeah, I know. That's a weird way to start a sermon, but I, I imagine for some of you, maybe it's Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You tell that to yourself before you take a test that you didn't study for. Or, or maybe it's Psalm 18.29, with God's help, I can jump over a wall. Slap, back, slap that on the back of your basketball jersey, am I right? But I think one of my favorite verses to, to take out of context has to be Genesis 31:49. When I was in college, uh, I got my then girlfriend, now wife, uh, a necklace with a verse on it because we were going to be apart for a summer. I know, I'm really romantic, super cute. Uh, the, the verse was Genesis 31:49, right? Uh, and I, what I did was it, it, had, it was a necklace that split in part so that when you put it together, uh, you could see that oh, the, the whole verse was there. It says, may the Lord watch between you and I while we are apart. Cute, right? Only shortly after I gave it to her, Rebecca thought something was fishy, and she decided to look up the, the context of that verse. And she said to me, hey, Eric, did you know that this verse is actually about Jacob and Laban and is saying that God better make sure that we don't get cl too close, otherwise our families are going to kill each other. <laughs> so not exactly the sentiment I was going for. There are so many verses that I'm sure you're thinking of. And what are we typically hoping to get out of them? Often, we're hoping that these verses out of context will give us a sense of peace, a sense that everything is going to be okay. Through these verses, we hope to get rest. And strangely enough, the place that people most often go to justify these verses out of context is Hebrews 4.12. Well, I mean, God's word is living and active, right? God's word doesn't return void. Well, yeah. But out of context and with that new meaning, I'm, I'm not really sure that that's God's word anymore. What's funny is that we, we often use verses out of context to find rest for our situation, and we justify it with Hebrews 4, which is the place that we should have looked at for rest to begin with. You see, Hebrews 4:12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, is a verse all about rest. I know, we've, we've mistakenly taken this verse out of context to, to think it's about any verse we read in the Bible. But when we put the verse in context, we see that the Word of God is not referring to the 66 books of the, of the Bible, which had not actually even been compiled yet when the letter to Hebrews is written, but the Word of God is referring to God's promises, specifically here, his promised rest. And Hebrews 4.12 is explaining to God's people how it is that they might enter into it. So this morning, let's, let's look at Hebrews 4. Open your Bibles there with me to see how it is that we might enter into God's promised rest. Let's pray first. Holy Father, we are restless. 
We crave rest and are constantly looking for it. Show us today in your word where we might find it. Give rest to our souls as we, as we seek you in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You see, from the very beginning, God has been known through his word. God is a, a speaking God. In this way, he's very different from the other gods of the ancient Near East and the gods around the world, right? Uh, he, he communicates. He speaks to the, the world and to creation. Did, did you ever think about that important truth? Like God could, the, the Bible could have said that, that God thought the world into existence, right? Genesis 1 could have said, and then God thought, let there be light. And there was, but it doesn't. It says, God said, let there be light. He's a God of words, of speech. And speaking by its very nature is communal. So even in creation, God gives an invitation into community, into order, into rest through his words. That's what Hebrews 4 is all about. God's invitation into restful relationship and people's refusal of that invitation. Look with me at verse 1 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So right away we're faced with a question. Who is the they-them that the, the good news came to that it did not benefit? Keep reading, verse 3. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. You see, here begins a quotation of Psalm 95. That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing, and it's really important for the remainder of this passage. Psalm 95 was written by King David as a reflection on a famous scene in the book of Numbers where Moses sends 12 spies into the promised land of rest that God told them to go into. Ten spies come back and said, listen, if you obey God's word to go into that promised land, you're going to be crushed. We're going to be crushed by the people that live there. Compared to us, those people are giants. And we're like grasshoppers. That's not a place of rest. It's a place of death. But two of the spies trusted God's word and said, no, 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 God will give us the land. Do not fear. But the 10 beat the two. They chose not to go into the land, and God responded to their disobedience by sentencing them to 40 years of wandering the wilderness. They shall not enter my rest. But it seems this isn't the only time God has said that. Look back with me at verse 4. For he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Now I know the text says he has spoken somewhere. And we might think that, the, that that means the author forgot where in the Bible it was. You know, uh, somewhere in the book of uh, something. No, no, no. He's, he's using a form of rhetoric to get us thinking. 
He wants us to, to think, Genesis, Genesis, that's where my mind should go, Genesis. That's where God rested from all of his works. But where in Genesis does God say, they shall not enter my rest? You see, it, it all comes down to what we understand rest to be. The Bible seems to say that rest, true rest, isn't a beach vacation or sleeping in on the weekend. These are, are nice things to do that might be glimmers of the goodness of rest, but it's not rest. The Bible says that true rest isn't doing, it's being. Being in the presence of God. In Genesis 2, Adam and Eve are living in rest. They could be in Eden as gardeners working and rest simply because they were with God. So where do we find the verse, they shall not enter my rest in Genesis? Well, it's not a verse. It's an action that we see in Genesis 3. You probably know the story, but if not, Adam and Eve chose to disobey the word of God. They reject the, the promise of rest and instead choose self-rule, taking from the tree that God had forbidden them to eat from. They chose their way over God's way. And what is God's response? He's not going to force his ways on them. But as a God of justice, he can't not judge sin. So in mercy, he sends them out from the place of rest and puts warrior angels with swords at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. With those angels, God is saying, they shall not enter my rest. Because of your sin, you can't enter in. Now this is a side note, but many years later in the tabernacle and temple, at the innermost court, there is a curtain separating the place where God's special presence was from the rest of the temple that was called the Holy of Holies. And that, that curtain that separates that place, God told the Israelites to have artists emboss the curtain with an image of two warrior angels, a reminder that God said, they shall not enter my rest. Because of your sin, you can't enter in. But let's look back at verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. We're talking about Adam and Eve, Moses, the Israelites. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward in the word already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, this is where the author of Hebrew is going to make a, uh, an, an interesting argument about the psalm. So stay with me for a moment. You see, Moses and the Israelites had to wander the wilderness for 40 years, but after that whole generation died off, Joshua then finally does lead God's people into the promised land the place of promised rest that God spoke of. So there's a general feeling that the promise of rest has been received. It's been fulfilled. But look at verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
You see, the author of of Hebrews is saying that Psalm 95, written by King David, was reflecting on the past entrance into the promised land and wrote this psalm, inspired by God, to say that a greater rest was still to come. Yes, they're in the land of rest. King David is ruling the land of rest. But perhaps as as David looks out his bedroom window and sees the, the tabernacle on the mount and is reminded of the curtain with the warrior angels still on it, saying, they shall not enter my rest. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, no, 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 no. A day is coming when God will welcome us in. A day when if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts because the curtain in the temple will be torn and an invitation to the greatest rest will be offered for all to hear. And friends, that's what the Gospel of Mark says happened in chapter 15, verse 38. That when Jesus died on the cross and breathed his last breath, The curtain in the temple was miraculously torn in two from top to bottom, a proclamation to all people that today, if you do not harden your hearts, you can enter my rest. All that being said, now we finally come to our main passage. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hear those words. Let us strive to enter that rest. I don't know about you, but that feels like a little bit of an oxymoron to me, like same difference or only choice. Striving rest. It it might be difficult to understand, but I, I believe the remainder of this passage tells us how it's done. You see, the first hint we're given is that the word of God is living and active. See, the Israelites at the border of Canaan, led by Moses, didn't believe this. He might be living, but surely he's not active anymore. They didn't have the philosophical term for it, but they'd become deists, like many people in our culture today, and maybe you. They believed that God set up the world and had a way that he'd like things to go, but surely that God is not invested or active in the day-to-day. He got us out of Egypt, but now we're on our own. But that's not the God of the Bible who spoke creation into being. When God speaks, his word does. Hear that. His word does. His word, his promise, is living and active. This was the problem with the Israelites. They heard from the spies that the giants were in the land who would crush them like grasshoppers, and they felt abandoned. They felt alone. They heard the bad words and stopped believing God's word, his promise. All of us are susceptible to that. We know God's promises of provision, but then the stock market takes a hit, and we're overcome with greed, and we begin hoarding. We know God's promises of love, 
But then our dream guy or girl rejects us, and we feel forsaken, so we isolate. We know God's promise of forgiveness, but we sin again and tell ourselves there must be a limit, and so we give up and become indulgent. This is why we need to react in worship. You see, to strive to enter God's rest means we react to a living and active God. And the only proper response is worship. Worship of a living and active God will give rest to our souls. Because worship reminds us that he's bigger than us. Yeah, I might be a grasshopper, but I serve the God of the universe who rested on the seventh day after creating everything. When I react in worship, it's a proclamation to myself and to all those around me that, that I am not the greatest thing about me, but it's Christ in me, God's word alive in me. What are the giants that lay ahead of you this week? Those giants that, that bid you to anxiety, to sin, the giants that cause you to think God has abandoned you and led you to your destruction. Respond in worship. Praise him. Remind yourself of, of who he is. I'm reading C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia right now to my four-year-old, and there's this amazing little paragraph describing the feeling each child gets when they hear the name of Aslan for the first time. Aslan's a, a lion in the story who kind of serves as the Christ figure. Lewis writes, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. You see, that's what true worship does. At the, at the name of Jesus, it awakens something within us. For the follower of Jesus, at his name, even in the face of great giants, his name can bring bravery, beautiful music, and the joy of the beginning of summer. His word is living and active. So rest, react in worship so that we might enter his rest. Secondly, we rest in his work. You see, that, that which we trust in will be the source of our rest. We all rest in someone's work, whether it be my work, my spouse's work, my politician's work, or my child's work, right? I mean, you're at ease because your son got into Lane Tech or Whitney Young. You can sleep because your daughter got into U Chicago or Northwestern, that your candidate got voted in, or you got that long-awaited promotion. Now you can trust that, that everything is gonna be okay. But the problem is, your kid could fail out of school. Your congressman can get voted out. And the job you've been living for, you could get laid off from. You see, resting in these things is like taking a nap on a treadmill. But God's work is different because God's work is done. Whereas in all of our work, we're trying to accomplish or, or keep the fruit of our accomplishment. 
God has accomplished. And it is finished. Look at verse 12. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. What this is telling us is that the word of God is conquering. You see, the Israelites didn't only feel abandoned. They felt helpless. Little Israel could never beat the giants of Canaan. But the author of Hebrews is saying that Israel didn't even need to fight. God's word would do it. God's word of of promised rest isn't merely strong. It's a two-edged sword from which there is no escape. I mean, the language here is quite graphic and medical when you look at it, right? God's word of promised rest is so powerful that it cuts through joints and marrow to accomplish what God says. This verse is like an infomercial for one of those miracle blades or Jinsu knives. It slices through a can of soda like butter. The, the, The writer of Hebrew wants us to know that we can put absolute trust in God's word. Nothing no matter how intimidating, will stop it. Andre Trocmé was a Huguenot pastor in a town in France called La Chambon when France fell to Nazi Germany. On the Sunday that France fell, Trocmé preached a sermon saying, we shall resist whenever our adversaries demand of us obedience contrary to the orders of the gospel. We shall do so without fear but also without pride and without hate. Trocme was facing giants, but he had the gospel, God's promised word of rest to guide his actions. Over the next few years, Andre Trocme and his wife Magda hid Jewish families in their home and aided them in fleeing to Switzerland. Not only this, but Trocme preached boldly that his congregants should do the same. On one occasion, the Nazis came to La Chambon seeking to institute a French version of Hitler's youth camp and began the event with a a large banquet. At the banquet, a letter drafted with Trocme's help was read to a Nazi minister by a young child. It read, I want you to hear this. Mr. Minister, we have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris, where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews, but we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, received the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received, and we would try to hide them as best as we could. Mr. Minister, I love this part, we have Jews, you're not getting them. What could embolden a child to read that letter to a Nazi minister? What could give Pastor Trocme the strength to help draft and sign the letter and preach boldly to his town that they should take it to heart, resulting in this small town hiding and aiding over 2,000 Jewish children fleeing from the Nazis? I love the way Trocme's daughter described him. She says he was a violent man conquered by God. Trocme 
was conquered by God. The double-edged sword of God's word had penetrated his heart. He knew that his thoughts and intentions were laid bare before God. He knew that God's word had conquered him, and so he believed God could and would be victorious. Psalm 44.10 says the same about the Israelites' entrance into the promised land under Joshua. For they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, because you were favorable to them. You see, God's people don't need an army to accomplish God's will. God's word will accomplish God's will. You see, the the Jewish people of Jesus' day were looking for, for someone bearing a sword to lead them into God's promised land. They wanted a Messiah who is living and active, wielding a sharp two-edged sword. That's who they hoped Jesus would be. In John 10, as the people are, are gathered at the temple to celebrate Hanukkah, the feast of dedication, the people ask Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. What they meant by the question was, are you ready to take out the sword? Let's conquer. You see, Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, was the celebration of the rededication of the temple after it had been defiled by the Greeks almost 200 years earlier. The temple was recaptured by an army of Jewish rebels led by someone who they believed to be a messianic figure named Judah, who had the nickname Maccabee, the hammer. The people saw the signs and wonders of Jesus, and they wanted him to be the new hammer, to lead them into God's rest from the Romans. But instead, Jesus told them, listen, I'm, I'm not the hammer. Instead, he was the nail. He would conquer not through a sword, but through his word. His being nailed to the cross What should have been our justice would accomplish our rest. His sword would be his word. It is finished. The curtain torn in two. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Enter his rest. Are you trying to get rest on your own? (laughs) Through your accomplishments or the accomplishments of others? You're hoping in the right congressman, senator, or president to be the hammer. Interestingly, Adolf Hitler, in a famous speech at Munich, used similar language, saying, one is either the hammer or the anvil. We confess that it is our purpose to prepare the German people again for the role of the hammer. You see, the Nazis met with Andrei Trokme repeatedly and told him, that resistance was futile, that he would be the anvil to their hammer. But Trochme knew of another tool. The nail is sharper than the hammer. His trust was placed in a sharper tool. The spies told the Israelites that they were only grasshoppers compared to the, the giant men in Canaan. They didn't stand a chance, but Joshua and Caleb trusted 
God's conquering word as they said, the Lord is with us, do not be afraid. The Romans and religious leaders told the world that Jesus was dead and would remain in the grave, but the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirits, of joints and of marrow. And on the third day, Jesus' joints began to swing, his soul began to sing, proving once again that the word of God is living and active. Strive to enter that rest by reacting in worship, by resting in his work. We strive to enter that rest when we repent in watchfulness. Look with me again at verse 12. This is what the word of God does. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, as we've looked at this text, we've said that God's word is living, it's conquering, and this last section tells us that the word of God is exposing. God's word exposes us. Now that's not as comforting as the living and active sections. I don't know about you, but when someone says, I'm going to expose you, I'm not filled with anticipation. The the text says that the word of God discerns our thoughts and intentions, leaving us naked and exposed. Now that phrase, naked and exposed, should be causing alarm bells to, to go off in your head if you're on any sort of Bible reading plan right now. I mean, if you just made it past the first two days, in your reading through Genesis, a phrase should be coming to mind, right? When, when God asked Adam and Eve why they were hiding from him, they said, they hid because they heard him in the garden and they were naked and afraid. Naked, exposed. Just like Hebrews 4.13 says, the naked and exposed Adam and Eve were asked to give an account Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? What have you done? I think the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright is helpful here when he says part of what this passage, Hebrews 4, seems to be saying is that you can't escape in the end. That if you imagine you can slide along in unbelief and slip by unnoticed into the rest that God has promised his faithful people, God's word will find you out will pierce through and disclose what's really going on, the secret thoughts, plans, and intentions that you make the real center of your life. Everyone must sooner or later give an account of themselves. At that moment, if never before, all will be revealed. You see, this is God's word at work. It's living, conquering, and exposing. So what do we do? We repent in watchfulness. Don't don't, don't be like Adam and Eve. When they're found out, they go into withdrawal, not watchfulness. They, They hide their bodies, and when their naked bodies are exposed, they attempt to hide their souls. Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the snake. 
And listen, they shouldn't have disobeyed God to begin with, but when they heard him walking through the garden, what they should have done was throw themselves at his feet and ask for forgiveness. That's what God was trying to get them to do when he asks those questions in Genesis 3. As Adam and Eve are hiding, he says, where are you? Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants them to repent, to come clean, to receive forgiveness. Who told you that you were naked? He knows. Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to? God is not ignorant. These questions are meant to lead them to repentance that they withdraw from. You and I do the same. We give into patterns of sin repeatedly. God tells us not to eat of the fruit and we eat from it. God tells us to go in and we disobey. We lack self-control and we lack faith. And God's living and active word will expose us. Now I know that's a depressing note to end on, except our passage doesn't end there. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4 is telling us something wonderful. The word of God that is living and active, the word of God that is powerful and conquering, the word of God that exposes us for who we really are is the same word of God that is calling us to mercy, to draw near to Jesus and to his throne of grace, the true place of rest you can enter in. I don't know about you, but I find myself failing regularly. I don't react in worship as I should. Instead, I navel gaze. I don't rest in his work. I try to make my own way. I don't repent in watchfulness. I withdraw and hide. I'm no better than Adam and Eve or the Israelites. But the good news is that God in Jesus is better. Where they failed, where I'm faithless, Jesus is faithful. When Adam, the Israelites, and I said to God, we'll make our own way, Jesus said, your will be done. He was the perfect worshiper, rester, and watcher that I wouldn't be. And still, he is filled with mercy for disobedient, restless sinners like us, saying, today, if you hear my voice, enter my rest. Are you looking for rest? Friends, it's Jesus. That's where the word of God is is calling us to receive rest, at the throne of mercy. Our feelings of abandonment and helplessness will, will get in the way, will fail, but he's still calling us to make our way to his throne. 
the poet George Herbert wrote a poem called Discipline that I'd like to read to you as we close. He writes, throw away thy rod, throw away thy wrath. Oh my God, take the gentle path. For my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. Not a word or look I affect to own, but by book and thy book alone. Though I fail, I weep. Though I halt in pace, yet I creep to the throne of grace. We fail, we weep, we halt in pace. But brothers and sisters, hear Herbert's call to creep to the throne of grace. Not looking to words of our own, but the promised words of rest in his book alone. It's by that creeping that we strive to enter his rest. As the writer of Hebrews has said, a day of rest still remains. It's not too late. It's not too late. Are you tired and worn down? Look to Jesus who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. This is a call to, to everyone. Whether you believe yourself to already be a follower of Christ or you know you're not, we all need rest. And it's not too late. Will you strive to enter that rest? Look up. Look up. And creep to the throne of grace. Would you pray with me? You're calling us. Your mercy is calling us, Lord. Ooh, and my pride is getting in the way. My shame puts a barrier. I trust in my words, not yours. Lord, break that down in each of our hearts. Help us to see the rest that has been offered. Help us to creep, not just creep, but run to the throne of grace. Cover us in your rest, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.